1: Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You should give them a call. They do great work. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show lined up for you today, including special guest William Yateman. He's a senior legal fellow at the Pacific Legal Foundation. We'll visit with Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment, about uh, stopping Biden's student loan bailout program, and Scott Baer, CEO of a Community Pregnancy Clinics right here on the Paradise Coast, and Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of many books, I believe about a dozen, his latest, Architectures Beyond Box. And boundaries. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. It is November the twenty fifth and on this day in 1952. The Mousetrap, a murder mystery written by the novelist and playwright Agatha Christie, opened at Ambassadors Theatre in London. The crowd pleasing Who Done It would go to become one of the longest continuing running plays in history. When The Mouse pap Trap premiered in 1952, Winston Churchill was Prime Minister, Joseph Stalin was Soviet ruler, and Harry Truman was President. Uh, Christie, already a hugely successful English murder mystery novelist, originally wrote the drama for Queen Mary, wife of the late King George V. Initially called Three Blind Mice, and it debuted at 30 Minute Radio Play on the Queen's 80th birthday in 1947. Christie later extended the play and renamed it The Mousetrap, a reference to the play within a play performed in William Shakespeare's Hamlet. On November twenty-fifth, nineteen 1952, 453 folks took their seats in the Ambassador's Theatre for the London premiere of Christie's Mousetrap. The drama was played out at Monkswell Manor, whose hosts and guests were snowed in among radio reports of a murder on the loose. Soon a detective showed up on skis with terrifying news that the murderer and probably the next victim are likely both among their number. Soon the clues, and sound like a game you played when you were a kid, uh, soon the clues uh, faced uh, false leads piled as high as the snow. As every curtain call, the individual who had been revealed as the murderer stepped forward and told the audience that they are partners in crime and shouldn't keep the secret of who done it locked in their heart. Uh, Richard Attenborough and his wife, Sheila Sim, were the first stars of The Mousetrap. Uh, To date, more than 300 actors and actresses have appeared in the role of the eight characters. David Raven, who played Major Metcalf for 4,575 performances, is the Guinness Book of World Records uh, holder. Uh, and the most durable actor, Nancy Seabrook was noted in the world's uh, most patient understudy for 6,240 performances, or 15 years, as a substitute for Mrs. Boyle never took the stage as the uh, backup. The Mousetrap is not considered Christie's best play, and a prominent stage director once declared The Mousetrap should be abolished by an act of parliament. Nevertheless, the show's popularity had not waned, After about uh, its enduring appeal, Christie said it's a sort of play that you can take anyone to. It's not really frightening. It's not really horrible. It's not really a farce, but it has a little bit of all these things and perhaps that satisfies a lot of different people. In 74, after almost 9,000 shows, the play was moved to St. Martin's Theater, where it remained until March 2020, after which the COVID-19 pandemic suspended performances. Agatha Christie, who wrote scores of best-selling mystery novels, died in 1976. The Mousetrap. If you've ever been to London, you may have seen The Mousetrap. Well, Thanksgiving has been an American tradition for as long as there's been in America. In the past five years, we cited presidential uh, Thanksgiving proclamations, uh, perhaps uh, especially the first from President George Washington and then uh, President Abraham Lincoln's remarkable wartime proclamation in 1863. Here's what he had to say this year. Let's return to the wisdom of our fathers and our country. In 1789, George Washington designated October 3rd as a day of public thanksgiving, and indeed the world's newest nation, nascent republic, had been reasons for gratitude. Six years earlier, the United States had fought and won its independence under Washington's command as a confederation of sovereign states. Four years after that, with the nation on the brink of collapsing and disunity, a convention of statesmen crafted an enduring constitution that would hold the nation together, even its most riven uh, internal conflicts. Washington certainly grasped the novelty of this enterprise and the tenuous nature of its compact. Every step Washington took uh, set some of the precedent for what uh, would all follow, including this very proclamation. And Washington understood that while uh, he was selflessly chosen to become the president uh, an American Cincinnatus, declining a lifetime role as president and making clear that the new republic served its sovereign citizens as well as the Lord. In doing so, Washington confirmed his status as a statesman rather than a warlord and transformed the promise of self-governance by a sovereign citizenry into a new reality. And for this, as well as for all the reasons Washington states in his proclamation, we Americans should always give thanks. We certainly should. And we should pray that the quality of leadership uh, in America today uh, matches that in the past. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis announced Education Commissioner Manny Diaz will continue to serve in his position as the governor prepares for a second term. Diaz is an advocate for our parents, teachers, and schools. He's worked with me in, uh, ki- to keep indoctrination and out of schools and put parents in charge of their children's future, he said. Now, this is DeSantis on Twitter today with a compilation of uh, Diaz's comments. I'm honored to continue the fight for our parents, students, and teachers working with you, uh, Diaz exclaimed in response. DeSantis uh, uh, tra- uh, tapped uh, Diaz, to serve as Education Commissioner in April of 2022, he served as a state senator from Leah. Uh, commissioner Diaz and Governor have taken, been in lockstep with regard to policies and legislation for students. He's championed the Stop Woke Act uh, to ban schools from teaching that anyone is inherently racist, sexist, oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously, the DeSantis administration has strongly supported the law. The Education Commission also supported legislation to create the Charter School Review Commission and supported the proclamation of Victims of Communism Day. As a Cuban-American, growing up, being born and raised in the community, the older exile community Cubans always told us of the tactics of the Communist regime in Cuba, which were very similar to the Chinese when they told us they would infiltrate our institutions to be able to spread their propaganda and hurt this country, he said. Now, this is Diaz speaking. Diaz also uh, fully supported the Parental Rights in Education Act, which was falsely described as Don't Say Gay uh, by the uh, opponents. The law uh, prohibits K-3 through three, uh, graders from being instructed on gender identity and sexual orientation. He also backed DeSantis' decision for Florida to become the first state to reopen schools and in in-person instruction five days a week during the 2021 school year. The economy in Florida is so prosperous because of the decisions that Governor DeSantis made to keep us open, to have our kids back in school in person right away and keep our schools open, Diaz said. Diaz has credited DeSantis' leadership for Florida being ranked as number one in the United States in higher education, as well as keeping tuition low so our students in Florida can actually afford to go to college without being saddled with debt. Manny Diaz has done a great job as an education commissioner here in Florida. And again, I just refer to the work that the Florida Citizens Alliance has done to propel Florida with great legislation to uh, lead uh, public education in Florida to the top. Well, a national uh, freight rail strike is viewed as increasingly inevitable as four rail worker uh, labor unions have rejected a tentative agreement with rail companies. In September, Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh brokered a tentative deal between the rail unions and rail carriers while President Joe Biden and the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg were out of town. Union concerns centered around the sick time and scheduling, and Walsh's work appeared to have avoided a strike that had the potential for far-reaching consequences on the American economy. However, the deal has fallen to pieces, and the clock is ticking as December the 9th uh, the strike deadline looms. On Monday, a member of Smart Transportation Division, the largest rail union involved in September's negotiations, voted that against the agreement. Three other unions rejected the proposed agreement as well, while seven unions had agreed to terms. If the rail companies and the unions failed to broker a new deal, Congress could intervene and impose contract terms on rail workers as it did during the last strike in 1992. If neither potential solution materializes, a strike would take effect early next month. In that scenario, American consumers could be plagued with far-reaching economic turmoil, and congressional intervention would become increasingly likely. This is a scary proposition, but right now, uh, Jared Cassidy, the alternative legislative director for Smart Transportation Division, noted that he has tapered expectations regarding the rail company's willingness to further negotiate. And I understand uh, the position of the rail unions. They're basically saying, we don't want to negotiate. We're, we've gone as far as we want to go. We'll, if the government wants to step in, let them do it. But we're, we're done talking. Is kind of their position. Well, the White House official stated that a strike would be unacceptable... As the president has said from the beginning, a shutdown is unacceptable because of the harm it would inflict on jobs, families, farms, businesses, and communities across the country. A majority of unions have uh, voted to ratify the tentative agreement, and the best option is still for the parties to resolve this themselves. Some rail companies have estimated that some $2 billion daily would be ble- bleed, uh, bled from the American economy during a strike, as the Associated Press reported Railroads haul about 40% of the nation's freight each year, and railroads estimate a, number, a rail strike would cost the economy about $2 billion a day. And it also, if it drags on, would cost some 700,000 jobs, would be lost as manufacturers who rely on railroads shut down. Pieces of the near, nearly everything We uh, would increase even more, and the economy could be thrust into a recession. So let's hope we can avoid this. Um it's going to take, I think, Congress and perhaps the President of the United States to step in, actually Congress to step in. The, the ability to transport crucial chemicals, packaged goods for humans, food and livestock, and uh, retail goods will be greatly undermined as families get ready for Christmas and Hanukkah. Let's hope we can avoid a rail strike. Well finally a new uh, data from the Kaiser Family Foundation showed the family of uh, the majority of mer- people who died from COVID-19 in August were fully vaccinated 58% of coronavirus deaths in August were people who were vaccinated or boosted according to an analysis conducted for the Health 202 by Cynthia Cox vice president of Kaiser Family Foundation it's a, cont- a continuation of a troubling trend it has emerged over the past year as vaccination rates have increased and new variants appeared. The share of deaths of people who were vaccinated have been steadily rising. Now, uh, uh, Fauci has stepped forward and say everybody should get vaccinated, consider wearing masks, get tested, all that type of thing. But why would you do that if in fact uh, people who have coronavirus <clears throat> are mainly people who've been vaccinated? And it doesn't prevent the, pass- the uh the contagion of uh, the the uh, variants uh, going to uh, from person to person. So again, uh, should be wary of government information. The more and more disinformation coming from the America from the uh, government, and uh, make your own decisions. Obviously, I'm not a doctor, but I'm very wary and concerned about the quality of information we're getting from Dr. Anthony Fauci and others. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to be visiting... Uh, with William Yateman. He's a senior legal fellow at the Pacific Legal Foundation. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Forty-five,
0: forty-one. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website... ChoiceSocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment. Right now, we have with us William Yateman. He's a senior legal fellow at the Pacific Legal Foundation. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
2: you so much for having me on, Bob.
1: Always a pleasure, William. Tell us about the Pacific Legal Foundation.
2: You bet. Uh, so, we're a national legal organization, and we defend Americans from government overreach and abuse.
1: Great mission. And uh, you do that actively in court, do you not?
2: Indeed. No, we've got 43 litigators and uh, litigating across the country.
1: Uh, So interesting. And the website is uh, PacificLegal.org, I believe. PacificLegal.org. So, uh, William, let's talk a little bit about Garland's appointment as a special counsel. You've been advocating this. Uh, Any reservations or thoughts?
2: Well, indeed. So uh, for m- months now, uh, this has been something I've been pushing on your, on uh, our weekly talks on Friday. <clears throat> so uh, on the one hand, it is certainly something I welcome. On the other hand, I do have a couple reservations. Um, one is what took so long. I mean, this has been an ongoing constitutional scandal um, for more than a year now. Mm-hmm. That uh, an incumbent president is investigating not just the the you know the president he had taken on in 2020 but the one he was hoping uh and presumed to take on in 2024 i mean it's been really inappropriate the entire time and garland's explanation for why all of a sudden a special counsel was warranted um that trump made a formal announcement i don't know if that rings true um and, and perhaps it, it is more likely that he was prompted to move by uh, the incoming GOP majority in the House, which will, of course, have investigatory power over the uh, Department of Justice and the FBI. So uh, uh, even though I welcome it, uh, I do find the rationale unpersuasive, and I do think this administration should be taken to task for what has been an ongoing constitutional outrage. And that brings, just briefly, the second reservation, and this is very much related to the first, um, whereas past special counsels that we all know of, so the Mueller team, the Durham team, um, the special counsel came in and picked his own team, picked a team of, of independent, if you will. I mean, not necessarily in practice independent, but at least independent from what uh, sort of government investigations had taken place to date. Mm-hmm. Here, the incoming special counsel, Jack Smith, is simply inheriting the same team of FBI and Department of Justice investigators that have been involved in this ongoing constitutional outrage for more than a year. Um, So I find that to be highly inappropriate as well. Um, So again, it it is, uh, on the one hand, something I've long recommended and demanded even, um, but on the other hand, its execution leaves much to be desired.
1: Yeah, and uh, doesn't Jack Smith kind of have a history of being kind of an attack dog uh, with regard to the issues of justice?
2: Well, shoot. Uh, he does indeed. I will say this in his defense. He is a registered independent. So at least as uh, independent counsel or special counsels go, um, he seems to fit the bill. Nonetheless, the fact that he's inherited this team that, um, you know, again, we, we've t- spoken about it before, that is out of the Washington, D.C. FBI Bureau, and they certainly seem as though they have an axe to grind against the former president. Um, so it, it is a I can't impugn Mr. Smith's independent credentials. On the other hand, I can impugn very much so this whole setup.
1: So interesting. So let's move to uh, what now becomes the lame duck session for Congress between now and the time the new uh, legislature is sworn in, the new uh, House of Representatives. Do uh, you see any problems here?
2: Well, I see a huge problem. Uh, this is something we've discussed before. Yeah, no, this is... Uh, um, we've got uh, the Democrats are about to lose their majority. They're about to lose their capacity to pass legislation um, by going it alone. So uh, this is a very dangerous period, a precarious period, and uh, we've got all sorts of measures that are on the table of uh, major substantive legislation. I mean, this past week, Biden, the White House, has pushed two. I mean, one for gun control, and one for antitrust. Um, That said, I think the two issues that the Democrats uh, appear to be focusing on is, one, they want to lock in their spending priorities for a year by passing an omnibus spending bill, and that is just to remind your listeners, on midnight of December 16th, um, the government will run out of authorization for spending, Um, so they've got to pass something. Um, So uh, the Democrats look to be focusing, one, locking in their spending priorities, and then Two, concomitantly raising the debt ceiling from where it sits at currently at $31.4 trillion to um, who knows how much. Um, and I'll say this, the Republicans, on the whole, are much more interested in passing a short-term uh, stopgap spending measure that then punts the issue into the 118th Congress when, again, the GOP would have a majority in the House and would have greater say in the spending priorities.
1: Well, the third alternative, of course, would be to uh, just let the government shut down for until the new Congress takes, takes uh, power.
2: From your lips to God's ear. And I'll uh, <laughs> say this along those lines. What we're not seeing necessarily from the GOP is a, a commitment to um, getting spending under some semblance of control. I mean, to their uh, – not to their credit – Their impetus, their motivation seems to be simply to control the conk, you know, when when it's time to spend money, as opposed to, um, you know, again, diminishing this Leviathan and out of control government spending that's been going on for decades. And uh, currently, you know, again, our debt limit sits at $31.4 trillion. Um, That is outrageous.
1: So does, uh, does Congress now, the current uh, Congress, lame-duck Congress, does it have the power to uh, it, send these uh, bills on to the, in other words, to create a new budget, new debt ceiling, so forth, and send it on to the president without the support of any Republicans?
2: Well, so uh, that's, I guess, a bifurcated answer on that one. With respect to spending, um, no, no, actually, I'm, I was incorrect. You're exactly right. They're going to need 10 Republicans on board for either measure, an omnibus spending bill or raising the debt ceiling. I'll say this. There are um, a number of Republican appropriators who, because of their position as appropriators, have a lot of personal skin in the game in terms of parochial politics, um, which is to say there is a chance Democrats could reach or could get 10 Republicans to get on board with an omnibus spending measure that would lock in, I guess, bipartisan spending priorities. And by bipartisan, I mean the Democrats, and then the handful of (laughs) Republican appropriators. Uh, um, But uh, the debt limit would be a much greater lift, according to current reporting. So whereas there's a chance the Democrats could peel off 10 Republicans for this omnibus spending measure that would lock in Democrat priorities for the next year, the chances of them also concomitantly raising the debt ceiling by getting 10 GOP senators on board is very low, I'd imagine.
1: William Yateman, again, Senior Legal Fellow at the Pacific Legal Foundation. PacificLegal.org is the website. William, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me on, Bob, and I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving.
1: And you as well. Thank you, William. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Phil Kirpin. He is the president of American Commitment, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. (laughs)
0: back to the Bob Harton Show, and now here's your host, Bob
1: Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best, and you can find out more and get tickets, visit the website gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Scott Baer, the CEO of the Community Pregnancy Clinics. Right now we have with us Phil Kirpin. He's the president of American Commitment. Phil, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you, Phil. Tell us about American Commitment.
3: We're a national free market advocacy group. We work really on all the fiscal, economic, and regulatory issues, and we try to focus on any given time at kind of the biggest issue going where a little bit more citizen education and engagement might make the difference and uh, tip the outcome in a more free market direction.
1: Americancommitment.org is the website. So, Phil, uh, you wrote a column stopping, well, these are not the exact words of the title, but stopping uh, Biden's student loan bailout. Maybe you could tell them, very interesting, you could tell us about it.
3: Yeah, I've been following this very closely now for a couple of months. And, um, you know, I, I the big question was who would be able to sue and actually have the lawsuits that have standing uh, for it to move forward and i really thought the key was to have at least one of the two states that have a state agency that service federal direct federal loans uh, because as servicers uh, you know there's pretty clear harm if you know the president illegally discharges half the loans you service you lose about half your servicing revenue Ah, uh, there are nine servicing companies, but I was pretty sure the private sector ones weren't going to sue because they don't want to be—they uh, don't want to anger the administration and be frozen out of the next round of contracts. Uh, but two of the nine servicing companies are actually state agencies, and so if the state agencies uh, either sued in their own name or the state sued state sued on their behalf, that uh, I thought that would be the key to getting a lawsuit uh, that would be uh, that would have standing. And uh, there were the two states were Oklahoma and Missouri. I tried very hard to get them both to sue, Oklahoma never did, but Missouri did, and that's actually the case now uh, that prevailed in the Eighth Circuit and that the uh, Biden administration has appealed to the Supreme Court. So it looks like that is going to be the vehicle uh, that's going to decide this thing, and uh, I'm pretty optimistic. I've read all the briefs, and I'm pretty optimistic. That the Supreme Court is going to uphold the injunction that issued from the Eighth Circuit, so we're waiting. Uh, you know, we get a decision any day on that. The briefing was completed a couple of days ago, but that, thats the—that's uh, where it stands.
1: Well, help us understand why—why uh, why doesn't Congress have standing and say, "Hey, wait a minute, that's our job. We have the power of the purse. You can't spend a half a billion trillion dollar, half a billion dollars uh, on uh, that uh, you don't have without the authority of Congress."
3: Yeah, I, the CBO says it's four hundred billion dollars. So you know, you would think uh, that Congress would want to assert its prerogatives uh, and uh, defend its power of the purse, one of the most central features of our constitutional system. And of course, you know, if, if the Congress were willing to do that, they wouldn't even need to sue. They could pass a law that prohibits uh, what the president's doing and assert themselves that way. And uh, you know, you you might think that the branch that's supposed to spend the money would zealously guard that prerogative and would be eager to act uh, when the president uh claims he can spend 400 billion dollars without a vote of congress but of course uh what we actually saw was all the democrats in congress for the most part cheering
1: mm-hmm. when he did
3: this and uh of course that means that we won't be able to get congressional action because you know even after republicans take over the house they won't be able to pass anything on this in the senate and um you know, it's interesting in the House, and Nancy Pelosi said about a year ago, you know, the president can't spend money without Congress. We, You know, Congress would have to, right. to do student loan forgiveness. And then as soon as the president announced it, she changed her tune and said, oh, it's so wonderful if I figured out a way to do it. And you've got <laughs> Schumer cheering for it and, and Elizabeth Warren. And so, you know, we've got a situation where the, you know, rather than, the branches performing the way they're supposed to in our constitutional system and you know guarding their uh, prerogatives and their roles and serving as checks and balances we've got a situation where partisanship has overridden that and you've got uh, essentially democrats that are cheering for the president you know arrogating to himself the power of the purse Uh, democrats in congress uh, cheering for that and so uh, unfortunately you know, Congress, of course, could and should stop it. I don't think they're going to. Yeah. And so the question is whether uh, the court can, be, the uh, Supreme Court, can be persuaded to.
1: So apparently, he's taken this action based on some uh, little-used uh, clause or, or part of a law called the Heroes Act. Can you tell us some more about that?
3: Yeah, this was a law passed uh, after 9-11. It was originally passed in 2001, and then there was a slightly different version passed in 2003, and I think it passed, you know, more or less unanimously. Maybe Ron Paul was against it, something like that, but it was like 410 to 0 or 411 to 1 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And basically, this law said that uh, in the case of a national emergency, if somebody is harmed uh, with respect to their student loans, the secretary has the authority to uh... make them whole essentially to to modify the loan terms uh... to make them whole and you know all of the examples that are talked about in the in the preface to the law and that are talked about in the Debate on the floor about it were things like you know if somebody if it's a reservist and they're called up to active duty and they're not making as much money and you know they can't afford their student loan payments you could delay them for them or you could forgive a payment or something like that and uh, you know it, it, it talks about like first responders and in uh, terrorist type situations and and that kind of thing right and so and and it does not talk about blanket forgiveness it just talks about uh, making them whole for uh, what happens you know during the that they're dealing with. And so it's always been the position of the uh, Justice Department and of the Education Department that this is not a grant of authority for blanket student loan forgiveness until Biden, where they rescinded all of the previous memos, and they issued a new memo that says basically this is a blanket authority for the Secretary of Education to discharge any loan that they want, as long as you've got some kind of national emergency as a pretext, and of course the uh, president said, "Hey, COVID's an emergency. Let's discharge you know 90% of every you know let's discharge 10 to 20 thousand dollars on you know 90% of all the student loans that are out there, uh-huh. essentially, and to, to quote unquote to supposedly make people whole for COVID." But of course, you know a lot of college graduates uh, weren't harmed by COVID at all economically. Their income went up, not right. down. You know they were enjoying. You know they they. You know, a lot of people, most of the people who were harmed economically by COVID didn't go to college. The people who were least likely to be harmed by COVID did. And you've got the president essentially saying, uh, you know, I, it doesn't matter. National emergency, COVID, it's fine. I can make up an income limit of $250,000 out of thin air, and I can make up the dollar amounts that I'm going to knock off all these loans out of thin air, and I'm just going to do it. I dare you to stop me. So that mm-hmm. that's... Yeah, I, the question is whether the courts will, and you know, as I said, I'm pretty optimistic that they will, because this is uh, nowhere close to what that law actually says. And of course, you know, we just had the Supreme Court decision in West Virginia versus EPA. They said, on a question of major economic significance, Congress has to be clear that they want you to do something. You can't just invent it out of old laws. Yeah. And, uh, there's no way, that, there's no way uh, under that standard this should be allowed to, to,
1: to stand in my opinion, just a, a way for, uh, to buy votes before the midterm elections, <laughs> a very expensive way to using, using taxpayer money. So where do we stand with the Supreme Court case now? I mean, do you think they'll make a decision uh, forthwith pretty quickly, or are they going to wait to June as they do with most, most cases?
3: Well, uh, the procedural posture that they receive the case on is actually it's an, it's an application to vacate the injunction, from the eighth circuit so the the government is asking the supreme court to lift uh... the injunction uh... it went to justice kavanaugh i expect him to refer it to the full court and he has ex- asked for briefing on it and so briefs have been filed and so uh... It, it'll take uh... essentially four justices will have to want to take the case for them to actually uh... they can they can choose to take oral argument and take the case now as if uh you know, as if this were a, a, a writ, a full appeal, even though it's procedurally a little bit different. But, you know, the court can do whatever they want. So if they if they want to take the case now instead of just letting the injunction stand and have it proceed at the lower level, they could certainly do that. And that is what the president's asked them to do, uh, in his brief it's the, they basically said, look, you know, if you're not gonna overturn the injunction, then take the case now and so I think that uh, more likely than not what will happen is they will leave the injunction in place, but they will take the case now and they will cram it into the current term uh, and, and we'll get a, uh, you know, the, the thing will stay blocked, stay enjoined, and then I think it will eventually uh, be uh, the Supreme Court will, will issue their own injunction and stop the thing permanently. So I think that's what will happen. Alternatively, they might just not take the case and uh, not touch the injunction and the case will stay where it is. Uh, and and proceed in the lower levels uh, with the injunction in place. So I don't know for sure what they're going to do, but I'm pretty optimistic that either way the injunction will
1: stay in place. Well, from your lips to God's ear, again, Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment. The website is AmericanCommitment.org. I hope you'll check it out, AmericanCommitment.org. Phil, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Have a good one. You too. Thank you. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Scott Baer, the CEO of the Community Pregnancy Clinics. That and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. back to the Bob Harden Show, and now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. we providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Scott Beyer. He is the CEO of the Community Pregnancy Clinics. Scott, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Good morning, Bob. Thank you for giving me this opportunity.
1: Uh, It's my pleasure, Scott. Tell us about the Community Pregnancy Clinics.
4: Yeah, so we are the largest group of crisis pregnancy centers in the state of Florida, from Naples uh, up to Fort Myers, Sarasota, all the way up to Gainesville at the University of Florida.
1: And uh, the work that you do is unlike the work of Planned Parenthood. (laughs) Maybe you could speak to it in juxtaposition to what Planned Parenthood is all about.
4: Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a... Diametric um, opposite, right approach, because we are all about uh, serving the women in a way that's not using euphemisms of reproductive health services or other uh, euphemisms that the uh, left might use. But you know, we're offering real, concrete resources to our to the our clients so that they can um, you know, hopefully choose life. But and that consists of pregnancy tests, STI testing, uh, counseling services, referral services, uh, three years of material assistance. You know, for our clients, uh, if they choose life, uh, and, of course, the magic of the ultrasound that helps the, the woman really bond with that baby and the, and the reality of what's growing inside of her. But we like to say that unless a woman feels lovable, uh, she's not love-able. Yeah. So we really want to extend that merciful hand of love uh, during a time of crisis you know, for the clients that we serve.
1: And uh, the proof of the pudding's in in the uh, tasting. Uh, You've done a terrific job. I was just looking at some statistics on your website uh, about the results that you've attained.
4: Yes. You know, this model works. It's a medical mercy model. Um, So we've had over, uh, you know, thousands of women that we've served. And uh, over just last year alone, 1,400 uh, women who chose life um, after coming in thinking that they didn't have a, a real choice. And, uh, you know, that gets back to that medically accurate information. Uh, you know, the left doesn't want to, uh, you know, admit the fact, and they want to do like what I call the largest cover-up in history, that abortion really does harm women. Uh, I mean, if you talk about the, some of the stats with preterm labor and subsequent births, uh, the uh, high amounts of breast cancer, uh, mental health issues, with depression, anxiety, and regret, uh, this is really, in, I, I say being pro-life is being pro-woman. And if we're going to really help women, we've got to give them the uh, resources that they need and the medically accurate information that they can use to make a real informed
1: choice. Yeah. So uh, just a sidebar here, how did Ian, how did the uh, hurricane affect you and your work?
4: Yes. So our Fifth Avenue North uh, Clinic took on two feet of water. Mm. We're still recovering with our renovations. We're hoping to be back up and running in December. We do have our Creech Road clinic that's been operational since Ian, but our Fifth Avenue uh, clinic took on lots of water, and we know we like to say Ian had an accident And our diapers. Actually, we had a, a row of diapers on the ground floor of our material assistance room that helped soak up some of the water. So our diapers really did help uh, you know, with Ian's accident. <laughs> but we are in the process of uh, you know, continuing to grow uh, and expand in the state of Florida. Uh, you know, our, one of the things that makes us unique is our university model uh, that we're not only dealing with the symptom of abortion, but really trying to get, um, you know, again, information and resources to women before they enter into that crisis pregnancy. And so our university model, our SHARE program, our Sexual Health and Relationship Education program, is an outreach that it really makes us unique. So we have people going into middle school, high schools, church groups, uh, and youth groups and so forth to uh, share good information that's going to help people uh, you know, be healthy and productive citizens.
1: Yeah, ounce of uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure, for sure. Right. So uh, uh, I've had the pleasure of, with my wife of attending your uh, the Community for Life events uh, in past years. And it's had a material impact on me and my thinking, and uh, and how I see uh, the work of uh, the community pregnancy clinics. Just do an outstanding job. You meet these little babies where perhaps the mother was considering alternatives to to having the baby because of for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just beautiful families that you see there, and and, and great outcomes. So it's it's just really just, uh, just really uh, reinforcing to see uh, something like that. And now you've got an event coming up on February the 25th.
4: Yes, it's our yearly celebration of life. And uh, like you said, we bring people together uh, who are supporters of ours and others who are just curious about us, and it's really a great event. But this year it's at um, Ritz-Tiberon, uh, February 25th, and we have Kaylee McEnany, the former White House press secretary, joining us, who also is expecting this December, and so we're hoping she brings her newborn baby with us, with her uh, on February 25th. But, uh, yeah, you are certainly invited again, and uh, I'd welcome all your listeners to join us and uh, support our life-saving work and just have a great time and a great celebration.
1: Well, that. Uh, you know, speaking of that, of course, how are you funded?
4: Yeah, so we are privately funded. We don't take any government dollars, and so we really do rely on the time, talent, and treasure of our supporters, which uh, across the state of Florida... Uh, we have many, uh, but we could use many more, obviously, because the work continues to grow, and the needs are there. As the economy kind of declines, more and more clients have uh, you know, greater needs, and we're just trying to be here to meet those needs each and every
5: day.
1: Yeah, absolutely, with additional challenges from Ian and other things. So I just encourage our listeners to go to your website. It's supportcpci.com. Now, you have a couple of websites. Is this the right one?
4: Yes, that would be for our supporters, and if someone is in need of our services, that would be at communitypregnancyclinics.com.
1: communitypregnancyclinics.com. Again, for uh, f- for the information, if you're not uh, in crisis right now, but you want to find out more about the event coming up on uh, February the 25th, supportcpci.com, supportcpci.com. Scott, you're doing terrific work. You and your organization just really appreciate you taking time now on Thanksgiving weekend to come on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you, Bob, and God bless all you and, and all of your listeners.
1: Thank you so much, Scott. All right, coming up, oh, we're going to visit with uh, Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's written many books. Uh, just I've read most of them. Uh, the latest is Architectures Beyond Boxes and Boundaries. He also writes his column for Newsmax.com. His latest is called Special Counsel Trump Prosecution, Reels, two-tiered justice. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: You have questions about your retirement?
0: to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host,
1: Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Just hearing that commercial about Blue Provence restaurant is unbelievable that we had the hurricane on February, I'm sorry, September the 28th, and was open. He was able to open the restaurant on November the 4th. That, after being totally destroyed, we're talking about water four feet deep, and we're, we're talking about a storm surge in Blue Provence. He somehow pulled it off, and it's just... Absolutely a wonderful dining experience. We were there the day before Thanksgiving, so I hope you t- consider going to uh, Blue Provence. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's an author, written many, many books. His latest, architecture is Beyond Bo- Boxes and Boundaries, My Life by Design. Also, he writes his column for Newsmax.com. It's called On Point. He turns out uh, a couple columns each week. Professor, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
5: And, Bob, thank you so much.
1: My pleasure, indeed. Uh, I have in front of me your latest co- uh, column, Special Counsel Trump Prosecution Reveals Two-Tiered Justice System. Maybe you could tell us about it.
5: Yeah, Bob, we've talked about this before, of course, and uh, we've seen such uh, a dichotomy between the way Republicans are treated and Democrats are treated, and mm. that applies to Trump, but it applies, I think, both. Also, generally to uh, conservatives versus liberals, you know, you go back to the Lois Lerner IRS uh, uh, investigations of conservative groups, Citizens United, for example, and delaying their a- applications for nonprofit status. And so, you know, it goes back to the, uh, certainly the Obama administration and subsequently we've seen it with. You know, just raging with uh, with the Trump investigations, the impeachments, and meanwhile we see Hillary's thirty thousand laptops, you know, or emails get deleted, and and uh, compare that with the armed raid on Melania Trump's wardrobe closet, you know, to look for secret documents. You know, it's kind of a you know, it's kind of an in-your-face difference. Most recently, we see we see this uh, special counsel that's been appointed to by Merrick Garland Attorney General to uh, you know preside look into you know, the Trump invest you know investigation both with regard to the capital six uh, events and and uh, other other events so we, we see this blatantly uh, expressed uh, I think we see it with you know, the you have to sort of obligatory talk about when you talk about the Capitol Six Riots, talk about how horrendous it was. But of, of course, of course, it was a a very bad day. But to have American citizens locked up in a prison where some of them are in solitary confinement for for twenty months and unsanitary conditions and denied uh, medical treatment and and rapid prompt you know, court trials this is not part of america you know this is not the america we we expect and it's been so when you think of how how rapidly this has cascaded into a just a uh, just an uh, bloody eyesore on what what uh, you know how we view our country you know can you imagine imagine censoring a sitting president we mm. can't can't talk to his people i mean what what banana republic what self-respecting third world banana republic could, you know, could sanction the kinds of the kind of two tier justice system we've been experiencing.
1: It's just unbelievable how uh, Trump lives in the minds of these progressives <laughs> and <laughs> rent free, I might add. So it, it's just uh, incredible the amount of hatred and vitriol that's been created. I think that's really kind of stirred this whole movement up and, and the, the special counsel, Jack, Smith yeah. he has a real history of being a real a, kind of a hit, a hitman man for, uh, for the uh, Democrat party.
5: Well, I mentioned the, and I mentioned the IRS, the, the Louis Lerner thing where he, you know he was working for DOJ back in those days, 2010, I guess it was. And uh, he was the one that um, suggested that he could maybe go after these conservative groups for, you know, look at, look into their criminal histories and so on. And, and so, yeah, there's there's this there's this long term pattern. But I, I'm, you know, maybe I'm a Pollyanna, but I, I look at I think what's what's going to happen now with the and, and you and I have also discussed this with the with the House being taken by the Republicans and these oversight committees, Jim Jordan, we we see uh, Comer and so on, Jim Comer. Uh, investigating, you know, you know, we'd see, I don't know, if it was CBS or what it was. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, maybe, maybe Hunter's laptop was real, you know. After <laughs> two years, oh gee, why didn't somebody tell us? You know, well, we didn't know. You know, we're just, we're just your faithful reporters. But, but uh, it's, it's going to be, I think, you know, inter- interesting. Is a, not, not quite the right word, but. I think when when they're going to be calling a lot of witnesses now on you know on on the big guy and the the, the kickbacks and, and and China extortion opportunities over and holds over over Biden uh, Joe Biden there's nothing there's no happy face you can put on this stuff you know, when you think that even Hunter as I recall had bragged about how he was connected with these top spies, you know, top spies in China and And you can imagine you know and, then we, and you have the china initiative that by that trump had initiated that's been cancelled by biden and in terms of you know spying of the universities and 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 you know all of these you know all of these concessions it appears uh, it, it's you know it's it's uh it's time for these things to change and i think I think there's a sea change right now. I think people are tired of wokeness. They're tired of having to apologize, uh, you know, for for the wonderful country we have. Mm-hmm. And I think the you know that American first thing you know, you get your own act together before you start, you know, bailing everyone else out. You know this absolute insane restitution thing now. Climate, you know, uh, you know for us to use tax money to you know, to make reparations for having made the rest of the world, you know, giving the rest of the world an opportunity to be prosperous. It's, it's just absolutely insane. And I think the country's waking up, but maybe I'm just, uh, hopefully, you know, just a naive hopeful, romantic
1: on that. Yeah, well, I, I share your sentiment. Many people say, well, we should just let bygones be got, bygones. Let's move on. We're tired of all this. Well, I think not, really. We need to demonstrate that there are consequences for breaking the law and for, uh, for for nefarious acts. And I think it's just really important that we have these hearings and we get the truth coming out. Because, after all, Christopher Ray was asked a uh, question in, in a congressional hearing Can you tell us that you didn't have informants active in the January sixth event, and uh, Christopher Ray wouldn't answer the questions? You mean you can't answer? No, and Christopher Ray couldn't. I mean, it's hiding behind the skirt of his his investigations. It's just uh, really—it's so. We really need to get to the bottom of this.
5: Yeah, Ron Johnson had brought that up with Ray and said, "Did you read? You know, the report we we." put forth, you know, and, and yada 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 and and Ray said, uh, well yeah, I looked at it and Ron said, well, apparently you didn't because all the things you said are not true. <laughs> if you'd read the report, you'd you'd have known that. But I, I also think there's a there's a broader movement where Republicans are waking up on on the election shenanigans. And mm-hmm. shenanigans is too kind a of word, but saying, you know, the early voting and so on. And and I think a lot of people are saying saying in some of these states where it's allowed, Republicans have to do the same thing, yeah. And, and and they have to get in and get people out early and 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 learn from all the dirty tricks of of, of, the, of the of the of the Democrats and 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 do a little jujitsu and apply the same same things. Now that's not just getting even. It's it's you know when we're using BB guns and they're using uh, flamethrowers, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a time for us to change our tactics as
1: well. Couldn't agree more. Again, Professor Larry Bell, I'd encourage you to visit his column. Again, on Newsmax.com, it's called On Point. You can also read his latest book, which is really fantastic, especially read the last chapter. It's really terrific. Architectures Beyond Boxes and Boundaries, My Life by Design by Professor Larry Bell. Professor, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye bye. I always enjoy it. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I learned a lot. I always uh, enjoy uh, doing the show. Hope you'll, uh, if you enjoyed it, I hope you'll uh, tell your friends. Uh, that's one of the ways we get the word out and uh, reward our. Uh, Advertisers with their support. Uh, so, again, uh, if you have any comments about the show, you can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.